And so therefore the Old Testament is, I use the illustration of, of a mountain climbing up to a peak, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Once you get to that peak and you find out what's up there, again, the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. to the spirit and creation of the church is what's at the top, right? Uh, then everything in the New Testament is hanging out on that mountaintop, mm-hmm. looking at that, focusing on that. And so I think it's significant to uh, distinguish the nature, therefore, of how the Old Testament gets to Christ and how the New Testament gets to Christ. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week, and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or find a link in our show notes to be added to our list. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reform Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today is a book club episode with Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski. And it's on his new book, in all the scriptures, the three contexts of biblical hermeneutics, and it's published by IVP Press. We're going to jump right into this conversation here in a moment, but as first, as always, we have a few reminders in the show notes. Check out the link to IVP Press to pick up a copy of this book. You can also click the link to find out how to be a bridge builder of our show and more about what that is. You can also find a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That's a group that we are in of other like-minded podcasts out there. And there's also a local church finder to type in your zip code and find a church near you. So we'll jump right in and have Peter further introduce Dr. Piotrowski. Yeah, we have Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski, who's the professor of New Testament theology and the president and academic dean of Indianapolis Theological Seminary. He's written a couple articles um, and he's been part of this new kind of efforts in the Midwest to plant and and build a seminary to send out more ministers. But especially so we're talking about his his book, In All the Scriptures, a new IVP academic book, which we'll speak more on. But furthermore, thank you for coming on, Dr. Piotrowski. It's it's a pleasure to, to talk to you about this book. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's uh, my joy to be on your show. Absolutely. I know I wanted to ask just, we didn't really talk about this pre-recording, but how's, how are things going at Indy Reformed or, or Indy, uh, I'm used to saying Indy Reformed because there's a church that's going on over there too, but how's Indy Seminary going? How's, how's your efforts the last couple of years going over there? Yeah. Uh, well, today it's very cold, uh, but <laughs> in yeah. large, uh, God has been very kind to us. Uh, we started, we, we had a first sort of sit down with a handful of like 20, 25 pastors. Uh, wow. It was eight years ago now. Wow. 
just to talk about what are we doing for theological education in Indianapolis. There was a there was an undergraduate Bible college, but there was nothing for Reformed churches or even churches that would call themselves evangelical, right? Bible believing, gospel believing, Jesus is the only way, sort of basic. Yeah. Uh, not not even anything for them, right? Uh, in central Indiana. And so we, we just asked each other, well, what are we doing and how can we do it better? Out of that came some initial classes in 2015 <laughs> that grew into a curriculum. And we didn't know, would, would students be interested? Would churches support? Would donors come along? Would we find board members? All, every, we didn't know anything, uh, obviously, about the future. So we threw everything on the Lord. We said, Lord, if this isn't your will, shut it down. We have other ministry efforts we can put our energies to. Uh, but he kept growing us and bringing along the right people, whether it was board members or staff, uh, finding faculty, uh, adjunct professors was difficult at first, but we, we got some really good ones and mm -hmm. students kept coming. And uh, after a few years, we said, you know, this, this seems to truly be of the Lord. Let's keep going and jump in with both feet and, and push it as far as we can. So seven years now into our into our uh, history. Um uh, we're just deeply thankful and humbled that the Lord is using us in central Indiana. Yeah. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. nice. Heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for writing this book. I, I would say like a topic like hermeneutics on a popular level, um, for layman, uh, it probably wouldn't be a, a type, a topic that would jump out that you would think that would be super easy to read or understanding, but you make it a very easy to read book and interesting. And I personally learned a lot about hermeneutics. And so how about for the audience? Just, uh, we'll start from the basics before we get too far into the conversation. People are like, well, what, what is even hermeneutics? So maybe define that term, why yeah. it's even, uh, really important to understand hermeneutics is a I, you say this in the book foundational really yeah. for how to read the Bible. Yeah. Amen. Uh, yeah. So in, in the book, I define hermeneutics as the science and the art of interpreting the Bible ethically and legitimately to be more, to be more concise. It's, <laughs> it's thinking carefully about how we read, how we read. And insofar as that we, we are people of the book, how we read the book is, is absolutely critical. Um, I can't remember if I used this illustration or not in the book, but you know, depending on how you build your house, if the foundation is off mm. just a little bit, yeah, the third or fourth story will be way off, right? Yeah. And so the third or fourth story in uh, in theological methodology is practical theology. How do we preach? How do we how do we do counseling, evangelism, missions? Uh, you know, apologetics. All these so reading the scriptures well in the first place. And our biblical theology, our understanding of church history, our systematic theology will all also be off kilter, pushing our practical theology way afield from biblical faithfulness. Though we may think we're biblically faithful because we think we're developing ideas from the scriptures, unbeknownst to us, we might be reading in, um, in ways that are more influenced by the culture than the scriptures mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, surely we'll get into, get into more of that in our mm -hmm. conversation, but a little, little short story. I was teaching hermeneutics at uh, an undergraduate school and a friend of mine was in seminary and he, uh, and he, and somewhere we were talking about hermeneutics and that I taught it. And he just, he rolled his eyes and just kind of uh, sighed. 
and said, man, that I hated that class. Mm. It was so boring. And it broke my heart because I thought, you know, uh, it, it's, it can be technical when you tell adults, either in college or in seminary, this class is about how to read. They say, we, we learned how to read in first mm. grade. What, what is this about? Right. Uh, but, it, but invariably at the school where I taught and at the church where I was serving at the time, people would tell me that that was their favorite class. Mm. Not, not because of my teaching prowess or anything like that, but because they came into it unknowing what it was, why it was important, and then come away with this revolutionary way of saying, oh, now I'm more self-aware of what I'm doing when I read, what's going on in my mind and so forth when I theologize. And I can hold myself more accountable to the text of scripture to be faithful and be confident in my interpretations and so forth. And so they come away with an appreciation. So it broke my heart that he had a bad experience. I just thought, man, that's so sad. And so I wanted to write a book. And thank you for saying this, Nick, that was interesting. The, the world is full of half read hermeneutics books because it can be so technical. And so it's, it's a dangerous thing for an author to say, I want to be interested because it just leaves it up to the world to say, you weren't, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the goal, to, to show the importance and the intrigue and the interest in, uh, in the fruit that can be born when we pay careful attention to our reading methods. Yeah, because it's, I think, because the stuff I've read, I'm sure some stuff that other people have read, even if it's not hermeneutics or how to read the Bible in general, you wonder, well, how did the author come to this explanation of this specific message or this specific um, paracope. And we'll, we'll talk about some of these definitions later. Um, But in the way that you describe it too, it's not, we're not, this is hard to describe. We're not placing a lens on top of scripture that comes from us, whether it be cultural or something. And so something you talk about in your book is no, the, the Bible actually gives us a lens within its text. It says, okay, I'm this, this is how you read me. So if, if you can kind of go mm-hmm. into that on how that yeah. plays such a huge part in our interpretation of the word, where the word actually tells us, this is how I want to be interpreted. Right. Yeah. Thank you for, for pointing that out. So anytime somebody reads the Bible or reads anything, reads a comic book or mm-hmm. a tweet or whatever, they already have in their mind preconceived notions of what I can expect from mm-hmm. that passage let's just focus on the bible forget comic books and tweets right now uh, <laughs> what, what's what what is that passage about i i already i already think i know something about god I, what is good what is true what is beautiful what is sin what is redemption and even, even atheists right everybody has some kind of preconceived notion on these things and so there's this expectation already in people's minds on what will i find in the bible um and uh that goes by a lot of terms, presuppositions or whatever, right? Mm. And and they necessarily become a lens that then determine what you think you found. Yeah. Right. Mm. We we hear what we want to hear. We see what we think we're going to see by that kind of preconditioning. That preconditioning is cultural. It could be from your upbringing, uh, uh, gender, race, age, socioeconomic class, just all sorts of things affect who we are, how we read, right? And uh, however, the Bible, and I think this is what you were getting at, Peter, the Bible is asking to be read in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's saying, use this lens, not your preconditioned Western 
postmodern individualistic lens or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever, wherever you are in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so how how do you how do you discover that, right? Yeah. Uh, so it could be a lengthy process, but uh, there is a way to read that is, shall we say, more in in uh, following the grain of scripture as opposed to cutting against it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as uh, I think it's Van Hooser says, therefore letting the Bible have its way with you. Rather than controlling the scriptures and forcing your presuppositions upon the text, which cause the text to be manipulated into different interpretations than the text expected, uh, we can let the text teach us, how do you want me to read you? Uh, and that's, that's really what I'm getting at in this book. So the first two chapters are looking at the way those cultural lenses can influence the way we read. Um, and then, and then secondly, asking the question, well, how did, how did Jesus read the Old <laughs> Testament? How did the apostles read the Old Testament? I, I didn't go into this, but I could have. How did Old Testament, later Old Testament authors read earlier New Testament, yep. Old, Old Testament yep. passages? Well, they're teaching us implicitly a hermeneutic. And so we get our theology from the Bible. We get our ethics from the Bible. You know, mm -hmm. We get our worldview from the Bible. Why don't we get our hermeneutics from the mm -hmm. Bible also? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and so that's that's the premise <clears throat> to be faithful disciples is to read the way Jesus read. Yeah, and that's that maybe an attached question before before Nick asks his next question. Is it maybe this also has to do? And you talk about kind of the focus of the Bible. The Bible has a specific message that it wants us to get across, versus maybe like and you talk about like seven steps to a happier marriage or five steps to a, a better child or education, whatever it is, but no, the Bible actually has a focus that it wants us to, if you read and interpret the Bible, this should be the end game of what you read. And so if you can kind of talk about that in its relation to how do we actually interpret the Bible? Yeah. Great, great question. Again, I think it's common to view the Bible as a collection of, uh, a collection of theological, dare I say, tidbits and, uh, disparate stories and moral application. And, and it's easy, it's easy to think this because it's so big, it's so big and it's so diverse. And so we come to the Bible in this sort of grab bag approach. I'll get a little bit out of revelation today because that, that teaches me eschatology. You know, I'll go to the Sermon on the Mount tomorrow because that, I got a problem with my neighbor, you know, I got to think about it or, something. Mm -hmm. or I'm going through some uh, stressful time. So boom, to the Psalms or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but if we recognize, and, and this is hard to do. I mean, I, I, I realize this is a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to, to readers who believe that they will be lifelong students of the Bible, that they're not just going to, open up the Bible and boom, all the answers will be there, but they're going to study the scriptures throughout their lives. Right. Uh, and we recognize therefore by our constant engagement, there is a central focus to the scriptures or a, a relatively small handful of focuses uh, to the scriptures. Then we realize what is revelation sermon on the Mount Psalms or whatever example I might use mm -hmm. are all being used to push in the same direction. And that direction, in short, is uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ, his, his life, the meaning of his death, the meaning of his resurrection, and the effects of his resurrection, namely the outpouring of the Spirit and the creation of his international witnessing and worshiping community called the church. And that the whole Bible is actually angled to, to, to that uh, 
summit, we might mm-hmm. say. Now, you, it, it's not hard to pick, pick any passage out of the Bible and say, wait a minute. <laughs> Psalm 3 isn't about that. You know, so how can that be? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, again, it's read the Old Testament as building and angling towards this great climactic therefore we should too and though not without not without some some work mm-hmm. oh, this is good i got a few questions in my head so i'm trying to pick which one um <laughs> yeah how about or just throw a ball out there just see what sticks start with the easy one <laughs> uh, yeah um you do you do go over kind of the different uh mm-hmm. types of ways that uh, uh, certain books in the Bible are written. For example, historical narrative is a huge one and poetic and apocalyptic and wisdom literature. Um, could you briefly let us remind us which one is which? Mm-hmm. And I think the big uh, hurdle for me in the past, at least, is knowing when you approach scripture to read it, okay, which one am I reading? Like, I need to read the right one correctly. I don't want to, in other words, be reading historical narrative and uh, be reading it like poetic or vice versa. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Thanks for that question as well. You know, most hermeneutics books, and this is not a critique of them. There Mm -hmm. there are a lot of helpful books, but they'll, if you look at the table of contents, you can see they just list out the the genres. Mm -hmm. So each chapter is a different approach to a genre. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what I'm, what I'm really saying in the book is, well, that's, that's really exegesis. That's, that's hmm. getting to the question of, uh, now, what do I do? What do I do to interpret? Hmm. And that's the second question. The first question is having a theory, a philosophy, a theology, indeed, of how to read. Hmm. And so what I do is I push, I push genres to the back of the book, to the, to the hmm. fifth or sixth chapter, because I'm saying that genre is really a combination of three other things. It's literary, it's historical, and it's redemptive historical, which means canonical, right? So uh, considering a genre is actually considering three things at the same time. How does the literature work? What place in history am I reading about? And where in the Bible am I reading about, right? So reading Moses, which is a lot of historical narrative, is actually even different than reading Luke, which is mm-hmm. a lot of historical narrative, even though they're, they're the same genre, they're at a different place in redemptive history, right? Uh, but to answer your question, then the the genres I uh, rehearse or cover in the book are uh, covenantal history. Maybe we'll talk about why I, why I call it that. Mm-hmm. Covenantal history, uh, covenantal genealogy, covenantal uh, poetry, covenantal wisdom, covenantal prophecy. Um, King, I think it's kingdom parable, yep. missiological epistle, yep. and uh, apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I recognize there are more genres, there are more subgenres, but those are sort of the big categories that whole swaths of major books fit. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're largely grouped together, right? Like I said, Moses and the historical books in our English Bible are together. The wisdom and the poetry are together. Then come the prophecy, prophecy New Testament, and the uh, uh, and the epistles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, but to answer your question as briefly as possible, uh, again, to go back to the original thesis, mm-hmm. the text itself is telling you there are certain indicators in the text that, that 
that clue you, the reader, in that I am poetry, I am historical narrative, I am prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we discussed this a little bit in the book. Yeah. Um, but again, it's it's about letting the Bible have <laughs> the say rather than forcing on it some some external uh, genre. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a, a stab at it. Um, you you talked about this word a few times. And you repeat it over and over again as it relates to genre. So, so maybe correct me if I'm wrong. And we we de we devoted an entire season to this. Um, but you read the book, you read the Bible covenantally, and this plays a huge role in how we read individual um, paracopes, how we read them as a as a story overall. So, how how do the covenants made with various people at different times in redemptive history? How, how do these play into obviously not just how we interpret various texts, but how do they play into our understanding the Bible as a whole and how to read it as a whole? Yeah. So I think covenants are the basic uh, scaffolding on which the rest of redemptive history is, is built, mm -hmm. right? That, that frame that holds everything together, if you will. And so the question in any historical narrative or, or poem or set of proverbs or, or whatever it may be is always what is the most recent covenant that has been made with whom on what terms and how's it going i mean that's uh right. I, I don't have any true statistics on this so you'll forgive me if this is an overstatement but 19 times out of 20 the the issue in any pericope is how's it going in the covenant mm -hmm. are the people faithful it, it Sometimes questions, is God being faithful? Mm -hmm. Some real mysteries of what's happening in the exile or whatever it may be. And how can God get us out of this mess? How can God redeem his own glory in the eyes of the nations or these sort of things vis-a-vis -vis the most recent covenant that's been made? And, um, mm. and I think if you put various passages, pericopi, pericopes, you say, uh, to the test, you, you'll see this to be true. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe defining this a little bit further. So we've, we've talked about pericope, we've talked about kind of whole story. So how, and this is in light of another question that I had in terms of covenant history, in terms of redemptive history, all this stuff. But like, what is a pericope? How does that relate to a whole book? And how do we see all these together as it relates to our hermeneutical kind of outlook? Yeah, so per pericope, pericope, so sorry for the Fancy word. <laughs> yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah, try, try. I try to avoid as many big words as possible, but just inevitable that we're going to have to learn yeah. some new ones. Yeah, yeah. So pericope is pronounced pericope. Pericope is basically a self-contained unit. So, of of thought. Usually, it's used in gospel studies, but it can be used in any kind of literary consideration. Uh, so, one of the, again, one of the major premises of this book is that. Of, of the book I wrote is that each book of the Bible, all 66, each book of the Bible is a complete and unified speech act. Mm -hmm. So when, when let's just take Ephesians, for example, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he, he, he wasn't thinking in terms of chapters one, two, three, four, five, six, right? He expected the, that when the book arrived, when the letter arrived, all the, if all the Christians in Ephesus would hear the entire book read at once, mm -hmm. right? So it all hangs together. E even Matthew, right? Or 
the Job, I mean, Job's beginning and ending depend on each other and everything. Mm-hmm. In if you really want to understand Job, just give yourself four hours <laughs> and, and, or, or however long. It <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The whole thing in one sitting, turn yeah. off your cell phone, turn off the, your, your computer and everything else. And just read from cover to cover. You can do that one time. Right. Anyway, the point is, um, uh, so it's all supposed to work and hang together. Nonetheless, a pericope is a self-contained unit of thought where there is a, here's where it gets really, really fancy, <laughs> beginning, middle, and end, ah. beginning, middle, and end, right? The scene has changed. The characters have changed. The topic has changed, something like that. There's a transition term, transition event, or something like that. And there's a new problem. And then by the end of the pericope, that problem is resolved. Uh, like... Um, uh, the the uh, blind Bartimaeus, right? Jesus comes up to blind Bartimaeus. He's blind. He calls out son of David. He heals him. Bartimaeus follows him on the road. We don't hear about Bartimaeus anymore, right? So there, there's a pericope, right? But nonetheless, that pericope is put there right in, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem for a purpose. It, 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 it can stand alone in its own right in that it's a complete story. There was a man. He was blind. Jesus came along, right? Um, and he follows him on the roadway at the end. Uh, but nonetheless, it's strategically placed in Mark's storytelling to accomplish something for the sake of the rest of the book. And the rest of the book has an influence on how you interpret that pericope. And there's mm-hmm. only one way to get this. Read Mark cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Read Mark yeah. cover to cover. And then and then go back in and ask yourself, what, what is this? What is this? Uh, this? story of this blind man doing here and what you'll find is if i if i may just because mm-hmm. i pulled that one out yeah is there's another healing of another blind man earlier in the book that uh is very different jesus takes two shots at healing him instead mm-hmm. of one whereas blind bartimaeus is just one right and uh and you got to ask yourself are those somehow connected mm-hmm. and if so what's changed from the first healing to the second healing and um just to kind of take a shot at liberal German scholarship, <laughs> you know, uh, the old argument was, oh, these are the same mythological or stories or fables that circulated in the tr- oral tradition about Jesus. And Mark got his hands on two stories yep. that have morphed differently over the years. And he didn't know what to do with them. He's kind of dumb, right? So he just dumps them both in there. Like uh, mm, if we give respect to the unity of what is Mark, chapter one to chapter 16 and the way all the pericopes in between are working together mm-hmm. we come away with a, a better view of 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 why those two stories are in there why the same thing with the feeding of the five thousand versus four thousand right um and maybe we can go back into that later but uh but there's just an example of how um a pericope stands on its own right there's a lot of theology to be learned just from that Mm-hmm. story but nonetheless it is when it was written and the way it stands now in the text of mark is in service of the rest <clears> of the book and the rest of the book is influencing it and you will just mine more mm-hmm. um, theological goodness mm-hmm. if, uh, if if you recognize that yeah it's, yeah it's sounds like there's a a larger canonical pericope as far as the bible the full overall redemptive story from cover to cover and then there's smaller pericopes within that of of smaller stories so and you kind of 
I don't remember the exact terminology, but I think you talk about near and near and far uh-huh. kind of uh, stories like the, the some things that are prophesied even might mm-hmm. come to fruition in a uh, short short term sense in more of a tangible sense, maybe even, but they have a longer term redemptive fulfillment, either fulfilled in Christ or even fulfilled in Christ's second coming, like Amen. temple, temple talk and stuff like that. Yeah. Temple is the best one because David yeah. has promised that his son will build a temple mm-hmm. and lo and behold, Solomon does. However, the, the great eschatological temple that is the universal church is built by again, the son of David. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so even Solomon in his being, in his fulfilling that, that promise of second Samuel seven himself becomes a new kind of prophecy to project further into the future. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's th- I think it's thrilling when you see this kind of stuff. That's yeah. Cool. And, that's, and that's the thing too. And you talk about this kind of the both ways where I, I, you talk about the negative and the positive that we can either miss the forest for the trees where we like, we miss kind of the individual stories and how they relate to each other for the whole theological message, or we miss the trees for the forest where we like, we don't understand, like we, we just, we just look at the, the pericope, we, we divorce it from the rest of the text. And so, um, and if, and you kind of went into this just, just earlier, but how do we mitigate a reading that's just, that's just focused on, okay, what do I do with this passage in, um, like blindly not looking at anything else. So what, like what you talked about before, what, what ties these stories together, these individual stories, both on the book level, but as a redemptive historical level, how are they related to each other? And then also to how do they uniquely set their own um, meaning that relates to the whole as well. So without losing the big for the small, but also the small for the big. Yeah. Well, that's why I call hermeneutics the science and an art yeah yeah there there is a science to it insofar that you know we can say do this and don't do that uh but then there's an art to it that is uh tacit is learned by uh, Mm -hmm. elbow knowledge sitting under good good preaching yourself Mm -hmm. uh reading reading good books asking the right questions um but but to answer your question as briefly as possible uh so what, what I recommend is a reading large and small context, just mm-hmm. back and forth, mm-hmm. just back and forth. Right. So if, again, let's take Mark four as an, or Mark, uh, Mark 11 is uh, 10 as an example, uh, Mark 11 as an example. And I am, uh, and I'm teaching on blind Bartimaeus. Well, first thing I'm going to, uh, let me back up a step. Let me be clear. There are other ways to read the Bible that are also fruitful. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, I, I'm not, against devotional reading or contemplative reading or reading for memorizing verses, individual verses or things like that. And I'm trying, but I'm trying to get it after, well, what if we study? What if we study and in turn and in turn want to teach others, we, right? We better be confident that one is truly the voice of Jesus and not a distortion, right? So again, if I'm teaching on, on Mark 11, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read Mark cover to cover and read Mark cover to cover. Uh, then I'm going to read Mark 11. And then, yeah, I might go back and read, say, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Then back into Mark 11. Back and forth, back and forth. Narrow, wide, narrow, wide. Uh, and um, I think that will kind of just loosen the muscles in our mind to, uh, to, as it were, cure us 
of atomism. I think it's more common that we just take the, the micro, see the tree, but miss the forest. Mm -hmm. um, and so reading in large, large uh, movements like that will help. Yeah, that's yeah. you say that in your book, and it's yeah. You, you also talk about yeah. This is this is hard work. Where yeah, you do have to read the entire book. You have to read the entire section. You have to read before and after it multiple times. And that sounds like hard work. You say I think I think you say this like you sound. It sounds like hard work because it is because interpretation because hermeneutics because exegesis. This, this is a a hard task. If we want the Bible to tell us this is this is the message. We can't take kind of our own preconceptions and then just look at one single text without looking at the whole text overall. Um, so you do advocate for let's let's read this entire let's be Bible people, Bible saturated people. As more Bible saturated we are, we'll start seeing these connections between these different paracopes that we may not have seen if we didn't read the whole Bible message consistently over and over and over and over again. Can, can I give another example? Since, yeah, yeah, um, please. Got Mark on my mind right now. Yeah. Years ago, a friend of mine asked me, what is the best commentary I should read on Mark? Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, Isaiah 40 to 55. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. How is that a commentary on Mark? Well, it's not really. But here's what I'm saying. If you want to understand Mark, read Mark cover to cover. Then go read Isaiah 40 to 55. Mm. Then read Mark cover to cover again and tell me if you don't see new things. Mm. Right. And what he noticed is the use of this term Again, I'm thinking about Bartimaeus again in chapter 10, uh, the roadway, the road or the way or the roadway, mm. right? I mean, it feels like that, okay, there's a detail. There's one of the mm-hmm. details. There's one mm-hmm. of the trees, right? When you're reading Mark with the disciples that are on the roadway, when they're talking about um, who's the greatest in the kingdom, they're, they're on the roadway when they meet blind Bartimaeus and blind Bartimaeus follows them on the roadway after that. And there are, other, there are other uses of this word way or road or roadway, depending on your translation. And uh, it just feels like, okay, Mark's telling us where this is happening. So we can picture it in our mind. There's a road, there's hmm. the side of the road, right? But ah, Isaiah makes a big deal about the roadway that leads back to Jerusalem, hmm. where Yahweh will gather up the exiles, bring them along. And the Gentiles, lo and behold, will notice what Yahweh is doing, and they will join this this end of exile pilgrimage on the way back to Jerusalem, Mm. right? And so he noticed that Mark quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, which mentions the way Mm. right off the bat. First sentence, Mm. first sentence Mm -hmm. of the book, right? And then from there on, notices Jesus walking along the way. Mm. And so you make the connections, right? And so there's an example where by reading all of Mark in concert with Isaiah, a detail has jumped out to be more significant than just, I thought it was just a comment there on the road. Turns out there's a history of redemption, eschatological meaning to Jesus walking along the way. And in Mark, where does he end up at the end? He ends up in Jerusalem, just like mm. Yahweh does mm. in, in, in Isaiah 40 and following. Isaiah 40 through 55 also ends up with this sacrifice of the servant. Jesus is sacrificed in Jerusalem, and you start to make the connections that Mark is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 to 55, Jesus as the embodiment of Yahweh to that end. And lo and behold, there are Gentiles throughout Mark. Uh, Think of the guy who's healed from the legion of demons Mm -hmm. who are recognizing this along the way. And so it's the beginning Mm -hmm. of Mark is the beginning of Isaiah's fulfillment. And it wasn't a commentary. It wasn't a book. uh, You know, it wasn't me telling him. 
He noticed these things by reading large sections and then some details stood out to him that didn't before. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, it, it, Jesus is the way. So it's, yeah. it's kind of yeah. like all of the Bible points to Christ. And that, that kind of put, tees up this question I have. Um, when we're reading the Bible, you talk about that the, the Old Testament is Christotelic and the New Testament is Christocentric. Mm-hmm. And the entire Bible is Christological. Yeah. So what does that mean and how does that make sense for all this? Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> so Christotelic is, I, I, from my understanding, it's a bit of a new term and mm-hmm. a handful of people are using it. I don't remember ever hearing it when I was in seminary or, or where I first heard it. And it seems to be a bit up for grabs. So some people use the word Christotelic to mean that the New Testament looking back at the old can see how uh, the, the meaning had been is leading to Christ, but it's only retrospective. It's mm-hmm. only retrospective. Yeah. That's not the way I I'm using the term. Mm-hmm. I'm using the term that it's prospective mm-hmm. that the Bible really from, I was going to say Genesis three fifteen, but you could yeah. say Genesis one twenty eight. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe you could say Genesis one, one where the mm-hmm. heavens and the earth are together. Mm. Right. That's, mm. that's how revelation ends up. Yep. So yep. even from the first verse, this story is going somewhere and there are particular uh, lines, cable lines, as it were, mm-hmm. carrying theological freight in various gondolas through the old Testament up to its summit. Things like the seed of the woman, mm-hmm. the tribe of Judah, the house of David atonement, um, Places where God dwells, whether it's an altar in Canaan or the tabernacle or the temple and these kinds of things, they're all they're all going somewhere. They're all leading to some kind of, uh, to use the big word, eschatological fulfillment, um, uh, prophecy even, right? In Deuteronomy mm-hmm. 18, it, you get the sense that you won't always have prophets. There will be someday a prophet who sums everything up and gives the climactic summative word of God, you know? And so, um, and so therefore the old Testament is, I I use the illustration of of a mountain climbing up to a peak, right? Once you get to that peak and you find out what's up there again, the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the spirit and creation of the church is what's at the top, right? Uh, then everything in the New Testament is hanging out on that mountaintop, mm-hmm. looking at that, focusing on that. And so I think it's significant to uh, distinguish the nature, therefore, of how the Old Testament gets to Christ and how the New Testament gets to Christ. Because the, the adjectives we use to describe things influence what we expect to see. Um, what do I mean by that? Like, if I, if I told you uh, there's, a, there's this young man, he's on the JV team, and he's Jordan-like, mm. and, and, and you haven't seen him yet, right? But you go and watch. You've got expectations, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> he can let you ones. down. He can let you down in a lot of ways <laughs> because of this mm-hmm. adjective I used for him, Jordan-like. Well, in the same way, if we think the Old Testament is Christocentric or some, some terms, Christiconic, or, or not, not about Jesus at all, you know? That will influence what you mm-hmm. think you're going to see. Mm-hmm. And you will force every square peg into the round hole of what you thought you wanted to see. But 
if we understand it, because because to be centric means you've arrived, right? <laughs> so our our solar system is heliocentric. The sun, S U N, is at the center, and all the planets are looking at that sun, right? <laughs> if you think the Old Testament is Christocentric, you will take every passage and kind of force Jesus in there, <laughs> force the gospel in there. But if you understand, no, 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 leave that passage alone. It's not trying to tell you the whole gospel in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it contributes a part to the slope heading up there. Again, which is why context is so important. A friend of mine and I were recently talking about Psalm 3. Um, maybe we'll come back to this later. So, mm-hmm. uh, but in Psalm 3, G- David is suffering. He's being oppressed, but he's confident that the Lord will, will, will rescue him, right? It's like, we can jam Jesus in there, right? Or we can understand that this is part of that that theme of the suffering servant. Mm-hmm. David is called the servant, uh, the suffering servant on his way to redemption. Mm-hmm. And if we don't see it leading towards Jesus that way, then what we'll do is we'll take Psalm three and we'll say, uh, "Hey Peter, hey Nick, uh, you've got enemies, you've got troubles, you've got struggles," and Psalm three becomes this psychotherapeutic salve to help you wrestle with the difficulties mm-hmm. of life, right? Whereas I want to say, no, no, first of all, it's about Jesus. And because Jesus was faithful to, uh, God was faithful to Jesus to raise him from his, the, the suffering imposed by his enemies, resurrection, therefore, on the other side of that is application for you. Now, your understanding of Psalm 3 starts with Jesus and then moves to application rather than jumping over Jesus just to make generic religious application. Yeah. And even using um, your own, um, your own scriptural interpretation, it comes right after an enthronement Psalm in yeah, Psalm two. Right. And it's yeah. the beginning of book one of the Psalms, which ends in Psalm 41, which is them extolling God uh, or extolling yeah. David as their kingdom. So it's, it's, again, it's like this roadway leading towards redemption. Yeah, yeah exactly. So people things to say, Oh, there's a development here through book one. Well, what's at the other end of that development? It's the gospel and us, as you just said, the community mm-hmm. of worshiping and gathering the Lord through Jesus. And that's the mm-hmm. key. It's not in the abstract. It's always through Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you do get to the New Testament, then you do have this heliocentric vision. That yeah. Christ has come. He's been raised. Now we can just stare at that and focus on that. That's not to say there's not also still a future looking, but there's an intense focus on what has already happened in, in, the, in the Gospels. So therefore, you put all that together, the Christotelic slope of the Old Testament climbing up to the summit, which is the gospel, the New Testament, therefore, Christocentric, focused, centered on the gospel, put it all together. Mm-hmm. And how do you describe the way it all works together? Well, the lo- it's the logic of Christ. It's the logic of the gospel that holds all these disparate things together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got, I got apocalypses. I got wisdom literature. I got history. I got things that just seem like it's all over the map. What is the glue that actually keeps these things together at the end of the time? It's the logic of the gospel, either building to it or revolving around it, that make the Bible itself also, at the end of the day, one coherent speech act. Mm -hmm. So the creator God has also spoken and has taken him a long time to speak, right, from Adam up through John on Patmos, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless, he said it intentionally mm-hmm. uh, for the purposes of glorifying himself through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, that's and that's and that's good stuff. And this and like we began this too. It's not we're we're not just putting this on the text because we feel like putting on this. Like like you said, it's it's the way Jesus and the Gospels read it. It's the way Paul and the Epistles read it. It's the way John on Revelation, even though he may not say it explicitly, it's the way he reads it. Uh, as we see this played out throughout the New Testament, where they're saying implicitly, "Hey, this is how you read your Old Testament," because I am the focus of the Old Testament, Christ speaking. So we can read it that way, and like you say, ethically, we can read this way because that's how it's been read, and that's how we should be reading it ourselves. Not saying, and I think you tell this or talk about this in the beginning above too. They're not doing this um, randomly or adding uh, knowledge that the people didn't have at the time, where they're saying, "Oh, this is this is now the interpretation today." That wasn't the case back then. They didn't expect any of this the stuff to come. We're reading it in tandem with the apostles of the New Testament as well. Amen. In the book of Acts, Paul goes from synagogue to synagogue and proves to them from the scriptures yeah. that Jesus is the Messiah. And by that, he doesn't mean Romans right? mm-hmm. they, or Hebrews. They're not written yet. He, he only has what we call the Old Testament to show the events that transpired in the life of uh, fulfill these things. And what do you know? People are convinced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is what which is what Christ talks about in Luke 24 happening just before um, what Paul does in Acts. That's what Jesus tells him to do. He talks to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus and says, it must, it, the, the prophets, yeah. Moses, and the law, the Psalms, everything, they talked about the Christ and the suffering that he must rise up on the, on the third day. Um, and so yeah, you start says, seeing what they're doing in the book of Acts and later on, oh, they're just, they're playing out what this interpretation is doing, what, what Jesus told them to do. Amen. Yeah. yeah, he says, was it not necessary yeah. that the Christ suffer and be raised and forgiveness in his name be preached among all the nations? It, it, well, why was it necessary? Why did it have to happen? Because God said so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's good stuff. I like it. Uh, this is so incredibly important. Uh, this day and age where we're all so individual, society is so individualistic and thinks the Bible is all about just them. And and we we have even uh, impatient reading where you you grab snippets of verses and slap it on a T-shirt or go to Hobby Lobby and and grab something that's oh, that's really cool. But it's like, do you even understand what that means? Like, did you read the whole chapter? Did you did you understand where and when it was written? Did you read um, after that verse and before the verse and the entire chapter? So. I guess my more practical question for more of a, a study lesson would be, um, is there a very, in your experience, a very misunderstood piece of scripture uh, with churches today that they could use a lot of good hermeneutics to fix? And what would you kind of, uh, how would you correct that? You're asking for one specific passage? Or, or whatever you, if you have one specific passage, you're like, oh yeah, this has been on my mind for a lot, a lot. I go, it's my go-to or in oh, you know, yeah. a general answer or either way. Well, you'll think all I do is study Mark because I have another example from Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if this is like the most. Oh, I think question. I know which one this is going to be. You talk about this in your book a lot. The stilling yeah. of the storm, right? Yep. Yep. I, yeah. I, yeah. The stilling of the storm. Oh, this is just a great story in Mark, end of Mark 4 because of the way it illustrates those three contexts that I mentioned. Yeah. Again, the three contexts are literary context, historical context, and redemptive historical context. 
Now, this podcast could go on for hours and hours if we really want to get into all of this, but the point is simply this. In Mark 4, 35, uh, 36, he leaves the crowd. What crowd? Well, he was just telling that crowd a bunch of parables, right? And the great windstorm comes up, and everyone knows this story. The disciples think they're going to perish. Jesus, uh, do you not care that we are perishing? And, And Jesus calms the storm. And then they, uh, their fear goes up, not down. You'd think it would go down because they were relieved, but instead it goes <laughs> up and they conclude, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Boom. Next scene, chapter five, they're in with the, uh, the demoniac gripped by a legion of demons where he lives among the tombs, mm-hmm. legion of demons, and there are pigs all around, right? So this is Gentile territory with mm-hmm. all of the Old Testament implications on death, uh, obviously demons and, and the swine, right? So the point here is that the stilling of the storm can easily, easily be read as an allegory. So you'll remember from the book, allegory is a bit of the boogeyman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Allegory is my way of saying when we take our cultural, uh, when, when our cultural uh, moment influences us so much that our presuppositions become so strong. And, and Nick, you just mentioned being individualistic, but a mm-hmm. lot of others could add to that list, right? Uh, to therefore determine what we think case, I just think we live in such a therapeutic culture. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks that, right? Uh, <laughs> it's so easy to read the stilling of the storm as, listen, you've got storms in your life. Storms <laughs> are raging. It's the storm of... Yeah, you know, I, I just heard this like six months ago from a random pastor in the area. Yeah, and it can be used with the David and Goliath mm-hmm. story. I mean, it's just it's just every 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 nearly every story is conducive to this end because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Living in such a therapeutic culture because we can't handle the living on the edge of Nietzsche's abyss. We need something to salve our miserable postmodern existence, right? So we're looking for that kind of therapeutic placebo everywhere. Well, you can, you, you'll find it. I mean, if you want it, you'll find it, right? So it's easy to, 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 to jam any part of the Bible, any part of whatever movie you saw recently or any novel <laughs> into that square, into that round peg, into that round hole, I mean, of, of that existential need. And so in this case, it's with enough faith, because Jesus asks them, where is your faith? With enough faith, here we go. Jesus can calm all the storms of your life. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, I don't like pick, I'm not picking on anybody. I don't want to do that. That is, that is the worst thing you can say to Christians. Jesus will calm the storms of your life when he returns and raises you from the dead. Mm. That's the Christian hope until then the, the life of the Messiah will be the pattern of the church. He was a suffering Messiah but never a suffering Messiah without power, but also, like I said, a suffering Messiah. So we're going to go through trial through many trials and tribulations. Must we enter the kingdom of heaven? And so what's going on here is the faith Jesus is calling for. Where's your faith is the faith in the parables that he just got done speaking (laughs) that the kingdom, even though it's like a mustard seed, teensy tiny, it will grow up to be the greatest of all trees. (laughs) Right. And then, and so, uh, yeah, so, so, so a little bit of, again, contextual reading, back up a little bit, get a running start at the stilling of the storm. And you realize it's not just faith. It's not faith that Jesus will calm the storms of your life. It's faith that 
despite the storms of your life, God is still relentlessly committed to the kingdom. Hmm. And your storm might take you out, but the kingdom is going to continue to grow and continue to thrive and to continue to, the the parable says, put out branches so that all the birds of the earth can come make their nest in in the tree. Yes, chapter five, territory. In other words, the mustard seed is already putting out its first little branch. And the first bird is coming in. He was controlled by a legion of demons. And then he goes to 10 cities. He goes to the Decapolis, 10 cities, telling everybody about what Jesus had done for him. The Gentiles now hear about the, the, the magnificent works of God through Jesus Christ and his saving work in that guy's life. And Jesus is only there for like 10 minutes. He gets in the boat and he goes back to Galilee. You understand? The mustard seed is already starting to grow. Now, so literary context really matters. Historical context. In calling his his following uh, a kingdom is to compare himself to Rome. Mm-hmm. I just take a moment to think about that, how immovable the Roman Empire was at the time and in people's imagination. They couldn't imagine mm-hmm. what would the world be like if if there were a kingdom greater than Rome, <laughs> you know? And, and you just say to yourself, uh, this Galilean rabbi who has 12 followers, he, he thinks he's going to be bigger than Rome. I mean, it's just audacious and again i i, I want to pick on some german liberals who, who uh mm. you know want to retrofit things into jesus's mouth mm-hmm. the time mark was written it was not bigger than rome Mm-mm. this is truly a prediction that could mm-hmm. only come to pass hundreds of years later right when today where there is no roman empire and there are two billion christians all over the earth right mm. so so you have this historical context to to raise there i say the audacity and the power of Jesus's claim. And then there's the redemptive historical context. These, these stories are full of echoes of the Old Testament, whether it's the tree with the birds or the parallel to the Jonah story. It looks and feels like the Jonah story, um, which again, fills out the breadth of what this is about, all of which will be um, the, uh, the eschatological permanence and growth of the kingdom, despite uh, whatever <laughs> assault Rome, Satan, death, unholiness, forces of nature might come against the church, and they will. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and there will be casualties along the way, like there was with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But like God raised Jesus from the dead, He will raise us from the dead, and that's what gives us our confidence. Not that God will calm the storms of my life tomorrow, uh, but that whatever storm come, Jesus will raise me back to life. Hmm. yeah that's so so that's a i I really like that passage that's a really good yeah Yeah. literature (laughs) history and redemptive history all in Mm -hmm. one place yeah no more mark i promise no more mark (laughs) no that's good it it, um as as we as we wrap this up it it shows us how this is practically played out which which your book has a bunch of practical examples on, on how this interpretation plays out and how we can look at new testaments fulfillment and then go back to the old testament and then see okay that's how the new testament authors maybe there's something else to this story that i didn't see before let's read this again in tandem with the new testament when i read the new testament let's read this with the old testament that talks about all this contextual stuff which you talk about a lot in your book and i think kind of plays into the to the mark narrative in mark chapter four as well but kind of as we as we send this off 
as it were. So what's what are what is maybe one thing or a couple things you want people to come out of this book? If if they if if they after they read this and they say, okay, um, now I can do this. Now I can understand this as it relates to scripture. Um, how how are like what what are you hoping people come away with this book as they come to scripture? Thank you. I uh, that's a great question. I would say first of all at the wisdom and the uh, uh, kindness and goodness of God hmm. and that we, we go to the Grand Canyon or we look up at the Milky Way and we think of God as an artist nature He's a literary artist too hmm. right? and so the way these various books written by different people over different times and in different genres and so forth different languages nonetheless that's that's a, an important word in, in, the, in the book, right? The cohesiveness of an mm -hmm. interpretation. And therefore, the cohesiveness of the whole of Genesis to Revelation and to marvel at the goodness of God that he's given us something that is uh, clear. I, I think it's I think it's clear. I think the Bible can be managed and understood and yet uh, provocative enough to continue to bring us back to it to learn more all the time. And then, and then practice. So, so I hope people's hearts are raised up to God and worship practically. Then I hope, especially ministers will feel uh, the burden and the confidence then that when they read the scriptures, they can be confident that their interpretation, when it gives attention to these three kinds of context is in line with what, what God intended it to say through, through the human authors. Mm. And therefore when they teach and preach, they can preach with confidence. Mm. Um, they can preach with boldness and they can make application that will make their people more Christ-like. Mm. And then equally for, for lay people uh, again, I hope it's, I, I hope I wrote it so that it will be manageable for anybody with a really a high school diploma, college uh, reading level, you would say. Um, uh, a self-awareness of the way their presuppositions might be influencing them, and then uh, trying to trying to bring them under the watchful gaze of Christ, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which would also be reading practices, and then come away with a clearer view of well, a, a view of the clarity of Scripture, um, and uh, and its its cohesion. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's you. You do a good job, I, I think, of going back and forth between a practical example of how this plays out, but also um, kind of on the on the thirty thousand foot level. How do we see this, and how do you place this specific piece of scripture in the specific area of scripture? Um, so I, I think it's going to be incredibly helpful for pastors who are who are saying, okay, I, I think this is what I'm seeing in the text. Maybe I can, maybe I can check this against something else, or for lay people who have Bible studies or just devotional studies or whatever, and they want to make sure, okay, in the message I getting, the one that I'm giving my kids or the one I'm talking with my friends about is, is this actually what the Bible is saying? Yeah. Uh, I want to be faithful with the Bible is saying, I think, and hopefully this, this book will be helpful towards that end where they could use this in tandem with the Bible reading and say, okay, I, I think this is faithful to, the, to what the Bible is saying and, and not me putting my feelings into the Bible and creating a God in my own image. Yeah. yeah, but the Bible, the Bible will then shape your feelings. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Feelings yeah, you'll have Bible involved. shaped feelings. Totally. So I guess if there were one more thing that I would say, I hope the book accomplishes is to form people's biblical worldview. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not from my book, but mm-hmm. my book helping you read the book, mm-hmm. which will give you a biblical worldview, which is the true worldview. And so mm-hmm. living in line with the truth is always good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Nick, I don't know if you have anything to edit out with or yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. Get the book. I mean, like you said, it's going to help you read the book better. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you guys are on YouTube, you just saw you just saw his uh his little flash of the book. I left mine in the apartment, so I, I don't have I don't have it around me. But yeah, it's it's also it's just beautifully done too. I think IVP did a great job on great job. Um, producing it, and the, the graphics are great. I think the graphics help explain the text, which is really cool. Um, usually, yeah, you don't you don't get that in in many scientific studies on on how to read the Bible. Those um, were yeah. those were hard to get. I hope people appreciate them. I've I so I I actually heard a podcast with Dr. Glad and Dr. Beal like a week ago, and they said the hardest part of, of writing their IVP book, <clears throat> it's like story retold or something like that, uh-huh. was all the illustrations. They're like, they couldn't find anybody who did the illustrations. And he said he had like two or 300 emails between him and the person who was illustrating on trying to get the illustrations right. But I, I think yeah. he got them right. Yeah, yeah. So all yeah. the hard work was, was totally <clears throat> worth it. Yeah, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about this book and, and how to interpret scripture and um, hopefully people pick up this book. We'll have it linked in our show notes Thank and, you. um, we'll post it on people will see it on social media and stuff. And so, yeah, get this book, learn how to read scripture more faithfully and, and more Christ centered and your affections will be around Christ. And, um, and not that you will never worry about your interpretation, I guess we're always gonna be worrying about interpretation, but to always be reformed or what scripture talks about. So thanks for coming on. Thank yeah, you thank guys you. for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys we'll see you guys next time